from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, December 11th. I'm Marco Werman. A British-based bank pays a record fine in the U.S. to avoid prosecution for money laundering. This former prosecutor says the deal sends a bad message. If you're going to engage in money laundering for Mexican drug cartels, make sure you're doing it within the scope of your employment working for a bank. Because if you do, you won't be prosecuted. And later, the suffering of refugees from Syria. People are arriving frozen. They just have the clothes on their back. They're arriving with babies. Kids are coming without their parents. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Egypt's defense minister today called for a national dialogue to be held among the country's warring political parties. General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi invited representatives of the Egyptian people to meet tomorrow night for talks to end the current crisis, according to the state news agency. President Mohamed Morsi has agreed to attend. The announcement came as tens of thousands of Egyptians took to the streets today, both protesting and supporting Saturday's planned referendum on the country's contentious draft constitution. The world's Matthew Bell attended several of the demonstrations today and joins us now from Cairo. Uh, Is the peace summit, for lack of a better term, uh, Matthew, likely to achieve any results? Do you think the various factions will even attend? That's what we just don't know at this point, Marco. There's been talk about some kind of a, of a meeting tomorrow. We don't know uh, exactly who will be there. The thing I wonder about is what they're going to talk about, because so far the two sides are just so far apart. You've got the the pro uh, Mohammed Morsi side saying this: the referendum is going to go through. This is the way forward. And then uh, demonstrators that have gathered at the palace uh, tonight are saying no to the demonstration. They're and they're frankly also. Uh, speaking much more strongly against President Morsi himself. Morsi has made several concessions over recent days. I mean, he's rescinded a decree putting him above uh, legal challenge. Uh, He says that changes can be made to the controversial constitution even after the new parliament is elected. Is any of this diffusing the opposition at all? Not when you go on on the street. Uh, what what I heard tonight uh, at the palace as marches were, were gathering around the palace, uh, it was really strong talk. I mean, I heard uh, people chanting a revolution, revolution, ir hal, ir hal, that means leave. Uh, explicitly, people said, we want to overthrow uh, Mohammed Morsi. This, this is a second revolution. Uh, here's an example from one of the demonstrators I talked with tonight, a high school student named Caroline, who was there with her family. Uh, she said that this is a revolution against Morsi. And I asked her, but he's a democratically elected president. Uh, why should he be overthrown? He's a dictator. He doesn't care about what his people say. He doesn't listen to his people. Uh, all what he has done uh, in, the fifth, in the five months uh, he's been, in, he's been uh, president, it's all chaos. Uh, people are killed. Nothing's changed, as he promised. I should mention, Marco, that I talked to a spokesman for the Muslim Brotherhood, Gehad Haddad, today. I asked him, with, with this rhetoric ratcheting up, with the two sides being so far apart, what is the way out? And here's what he had to say. 
I don't think this is going to go. This is going to go anywhere but to a referendum and to a stable government. I'm very hopeful of the process because I know that there are enough good people in Egypt to protect how this is going to go forward. There's a democratic process. It will remain peaceful, and you're going to stick to it, whether they like it or not. Now, from what I understand, Matthew, Morsi supporters from the Muslim Brotherhood rallied at a mosque uh, in the Nasser City neighborhood of Cairo. Opponents marched on the presidential palace. Are, are the two sides trying to keep away from each other to avoid violence? It looks that way for now, thankfully. There have been in recent days violent incidents. Just last night, there was uh, an attack on a sit-in in Tahrir Square where uh, at least eight people were injured. Uh, But that didn't go on for too long. The big worry is the kind of thing uh, that happened last week where there were two groups of opposing demonstrators and counter-demonstrators, and they had a real street battle. There were at least uh, 10 people killed. Uh, And this is the kind of thing that really makes Egyptians worry. Uh, One final thing uh, I want to ask you about, Matthew, a sticking point. Uh, The head of Egypt's Association of Judges says most of its members have refused to oversee Saturday's uh, referendum on the Constitution, uh, and judges are supposed to administer this vote. Can it really go ahead? There have been judges, though, that have said that they will uh, oversee the referendum as long as there isn't violence. As far as I know, there doesn't seem to be uh, a, a block from from the judges themselves that would make this thing impossible. Uh, of course, we're talking now on Tuesday. A lot could happen between now and Saturday. But you've got the, the wheels of the government behind uh, Mohamed Morsi saying that the referendum will go through. Uh, and, and as far as I can tell, I think it will. The world's Matthew Bell in Cairo. Great to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Marco. No good news to report on Syria. The violence there continues, and now there are concerns about al-Qaeda infiltrating Syrian rebel groups. Large parts of the key city of Aleppo are reportedly under the control of one al-Qaeda affiliate. And what about the human toll of the fighting now in its 21st month? According to activists, more than 40,000 people have been killed, and the United Nations says more than half a million Syrians have sought refuge in neighboring countries and in North Africa as well. Melissa Fleming is a spokesperson for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. She says many of those refugees have made a harrowing journey. We have accounts from Jordan at the border where people are arriving frozen from, you know, awful rain uh, that's very cold. They just have the clothes on their back, very flimsy clothes. They're arriving with babies. Kids are coming without their parents. In many cases, we have people who are injured and often gravely. So they head you know, directly to the hospital. They're people who are targeted en route. So not only have they made this awful decision that they can't take it anymore, the violence is so bad in their hometown that they're going to make for the border but they're getting targeted as they flee in some cases. Mm, So the so-called lucky ones who get across the border, where do they go and what do they do when they get there? Well, we have to congratulate the neighboring countries because they've kept their borders open uh, to people coming across, and that is an enormous gift for people having to, to suffer this kind of violence. Escaping a country to seek asylum, there should be safe passage, and we're appealing to all sides to allow people at least to flee. You spoke of the freezing rain earlier. I mean, it's bound to be cold in these refugee camps now. What are the basic needs? These are countries that uh, one usually associates with sunshine and and warmth and desert, but deserts get very cold at night. It gets wet in the winter. And there are refugee camps. These are spaces where there was nothing before. In Jordan, 
the places where people are living. It was just a big, huge strip of flat land. And we've been building tents, and now we're building even kind of prefab structures that can be dismantled and perhaps one day taken along to Syria if the peace ever comes and reestablished there. You know, there are tons of children coming over. 60%, we're saying right now, are little kids. And there are a lot of old people, too. So obviously the needs for them are, are much higher. Now, Melissa, you visited these camps in Turkey and Jordan. What's interesting is that only about 40% of the Syrian refugees are in these camps. Where are the others, 60%? That's correct. Most refugees are going to live in cities, to live in villages, to live in the communities. They're either renting spaces or, you know, what I've witnessed in many places uh, in Lebanon, for example, people are just offering their spare rooms or, you know, taking their barn or their garage and trying to help with our help refurbish it so that it, it can accommodate families. These are people with very little means themselves often living in poverty. So not only do we need to help the refugees, but we need to help the people who are helping the refugees. Turkey alone, though, when you look at it, has 14 refugee camps, and they continue to build you know, refugee camps as fast as they can. As soon as one is built, it's filled almost within moments. So it is really, really stretching the resources of the neighboring countries. Now, when you were in those camps in Turkey and Jordan, I'm sure that people had some incredible stories. What kinds of things were they telling you about their flight? The stories, I think, that really stay with me are the stories of the children. Children who have seen their friends die in front of them. Children who said uh, they've lost their house. It burned down along with family members with them. It's really hard to fathom how a a child can go through that and then move on. You know, these are the innocents involved and they've made it out to safety. They have a chance for a new life, but they've lost so very much. Melissa Fleming, the spokesperson for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. She's been working with the more than half a million Syrians who have fled to refugee camps in neighboring countries. Melissa, thanks very much. Thank you. As the fighting in Syria has raged on, there have been occasional reports about Syrian archaeological sites damaged in the conflict. The total scope of that damage has started to come to light, largely thanks to one diligent graduate student in northern England. She spent every day tracking damaged and looted archaeological sites in Syria. Reporter Daniel Estrin went to Durham, England, to meet the archaeologist who does her digging online. Emma Kuhnliff sits in a tiny graduate student's office on the medieval campus of the University of Durham. But her mind is thousands of miles east in Syria. Every day she goes online, sometimes for a few hours, to monitor the Facebook feeds of local Syrian groups for word about damaged sites. It's a new world online now. The prevalence of social networking sites like Facebook, ease of access to YouTube and the way that most people's mobile phones now can take videos means that All those people who are desperate to share information have a really easy way to upload it and make it accessible. She did her PhD research on monitoring Syrian archaeological sites with satellite imagery. When fighting turned fierce in Syria, she began to consult imagery much closer to the ground. Videos and photos posted by concerned Syrian citizens. Sites were being damaged and also looted. As much as some people in an area might loot, others will be quite horrified by the fact it's happening. So there are videos, for example, of looting at at least two of the dead cities. 
This is one YouTube video she found showing damage and looting to one of those dead cities of northern Syria. These were cities built between the 1st and 8th centuries and then suddenly abandoned. They're a favorite of archaeologists. The preservation's incredible. They're like being in ghost towns. That's why they're called the dead cities. A Syrian citizen shot the video and set it to somber traditional music. It documents extensive looting to the ancient ruins there, including Roman tombs dating to the first century. A memo from the Syrian prime minister leaked last year claimed that criminals specializing in the theft of antiquities had smuggled special tools and satellite communication devices into Syria and were planning daring thefts at museums. And indeed, some ancient statues have been reported stolen. It's hard to know where they ended up, Kunlif says. They're rumored to have been sold on the black markets of Japan, Russia, and the Gulf countries. So, for example, a, a cylinder seal, which is a sort of Bronze Age artifact that you would find in quite a lot of sites in Syria or Iraq or anywhere in that area. They're about the size of my thumb. These used to be worth, you know, sort of £1,000, £10,000. There was one went for about 250000 last year. So the prices on these things are increasing exponentially, which can only reflect increasing demand. Kunlif says the Syrian government's antiquities department has started a campaign to try to educate the public not to loot. Still, the list of damaged and plundered sites continues to grow. Kunlif's report on damaged historical sites in Syria was published in May, but it's already out of date. Now the table of contents runs eight pages long, single-spaced. But what's the point of all this documenting when people are dying and you're so far away? That's a fair question. And it's a question Kunlif says some of her colleagues in the archaeology world have been asking. They wonder, what's the use of observing damage from afar? Her answer is that when the fighting is over and Syria begins to rebuild, there will be a thorough list to sift through and help in deciding what to recover first. There'll be a record of what's been damaged, so it'll be a place to start. Because a lot of these are going to provide very, very necessary tourist revenue. It's not just about the money. More than anything, she says, the list makes you ponder the extent of the damage to historical treasures. Along with the enormous loss of life and massive human displacement, it's one other tragic loss for Syria and for world heritage. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin, Durham, England. We have photos of archaeologist Emma Cunliffe on a visit to Syria and video of the looting that she's documented. That's all at theworld.org. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Devout Muslims consider alcohol haram, something that's forbidden. But that doesn't mean there are no Muslim alcoholics. In fact, alcohol abuse occurs within immigrant Muslim communities here in the U.S. And there's a great need for culturally and religiously sensitive programs to address it. Ruxandra Guidi of KPCC in Los Angeles has this story of a Muslim man from India who speaks openly about his alcohol abuse and how he got help. Khalik Iqbal is a man in his early 60s, an immigrant from northern India who's practiced Islam for as long as he can remember. He's also always known that the Quran prohibits drinking alcohol, even as he tried his first beer. Maybe I was 22, 23, and when I was in my college, after one or two years, I started drinking, means drinking means a couple of beers during the evening or a couple of shots. 
Iqbal and his family moved to Los Angeles in the 80s, and he soon realized that alcohol was easy to get. By 1997, he could no longer function without alcohol. On a recent weeknight, Iqbal and his wife sit down to dinner. They eat on the floor over a plastic mat following their custom and drink water and coconut juice. His wife offers Iqbal a gentle smile as Iqbal talks candidly about how the pressures to succeed in America led him to depression and alcoholism. He only stopped drinking during the holy month of Ramadan. I quit for a month or 40 days or 50 days, but as soon as that thing is over again, I stop. I quit one time I quit for almost a year without any help. I had two DUI. But last DUI, the whole me in a cell, at the time I decided no. This is over. I hit my bottom. He had to do something. He ran a small grocery store and it was going bankrupt because of his drinking. So his college-age son, Shafi, encouraged him to head to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I thought I always thought of it as a human problem. Uh, so It didn't shock me, and I've always seen that in our community and in, in many religious communities, there's things that are said and done in public, and there are, there's a different reality in private. But going public about drinking in Islam can be tantamount to denouncing one's faith. The Quran prohibits drinking alcohol and making or selling it. Breaking those rules can bring shame, says Mona Amer, a psychology professor at the American University of Cairo. She focuses on mental health and substance abuse among Muslims. Oftentimes the uh, concern amongst people who are using alcohol is not the religious prohibition per se, but more of the stigma within the community. Amer says there's little public health research about substance abuse among Muslims. But findings so far point to a trend. Most Muslims who do abuse alcohol start around college age, like Iqbal. In her workshops in the U.S., Amer has found parents in denial about their kids drinking and worry their mosques will also judge them. Okay, I, I think I have the number. Those worries led Yasir Fasaga to become a family therapist. An immigrant from Eritrea, Fasaga is also an imam at the Orange County Islamic Foundation, where he would hear from families worried about alcoholic relatives. That is when I felt I was very deficient. And I think that I also felt a bit dishonest because it takes a lot within the community for people to come out and say, I have this problem. Imams are very trusted in the community. So what do you do at that point? Back then, he felt he couldn't do much besides listen and encourage abstinence, like most religious leaders do. Now he suggests more, like rehab and therapy programs, and he makes sure that alcoholics know that their faith will help in their recovery. Kali Kigbal has been sober for five years. After some initial struggle, he says, Alcoholics Anonymous worked for him. AA has roots in Christianity and the Bible, but Iqbal doesn't mind that at all. AA doesn't talk about the religion. It started that way, but they say you have to have some kind of faith. There's a supreme power. That supreme power can come from anywhere. Iqbal says his alcoholism has made him eager to help fellow Muslims in need. But it's not easy to get people to talk, he says. For now, there's a newer 12-step program called Milati Islami. It started in Baltimore in 1989, and it's like AA, but rooted in the teachings of the Quran. 
but many mosques in the U.S. are still somewhat resistant to it. For The World, I'm Ruxandra Guiri, Los Angeles. Chinese netizens received a surprising piece of news today. It turns out that their government's official news agency, Xinhua, has an active Twitter account. That's despite the fact that Twitter, Facebook, and many other social networking sites are banned in China. Chinese Internet users aren't pleased about this news. They're making their opinions heard on Chinese micro-blogging sites like Weibo. Liang Ni is a producer with the BBC's Chinese service. And Liang, it appears that Xinhua has been on Twitter since March of this year. And I can see why the Chinese didn't know about it, because no one in China is on Twitter. So who broke this news? Was it someone outside of China who's on Twitter? No, ironically, it was one of Chinese official newspaper, but a local official newspaper, uh, which broke the news. So what are the Chinese saying about this? How are they expressing their outrage? Well, of course, I've seen uh, quite a a number of uh, Chinese Internet users posting their comments on China's microblogs. And most of the comments are very negative. Mm. Some of the comments are quite uh, funny and ironic, very typical of the comments by Chinese Internet users, like, uh, is Xinhua circumventing the firewall? Is that legal? (laughs) Should officials at Xinhua be uh, arrested for violating Chinese government's regulation on the internet? Nice and sarcastic. Well, um, what about the kinds of things that Xinhua has been tweeting about? I mean, is it kind of what you'd expect, government propaganda? Yes, indeed. It's tweeting about its uh, stories on its main website. And uh, ironically, Xinhua has been uh, only tweeting this in English, not in Chinese. So apparently uh, it's aiming for a target audience, not in China, but in the Western world. And how many followers uh, does Xinhua have? I've just logged on to the Xinhua's account on Twitter. I've seen, as of now, it's uh, about uh, 5,500 Right. And it's still growing. Right, 5,500. That's not real big, but that's spread all over the world, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And and uh, tell me the number next to the number of uh, people that Xinhua is following. Zero. Yeah, that's a weird part about the story because they had 400 uh, people that they were following, and then apparently they started unfollowing all of them, and it was down to zero by October. Why was that? Uh, I guess... Xinhua is doing this Twitter thing as an experiment. Mm. And at this moment, it doesn't want to attract uh, any more publicity. And uh, as to whether this would indicate that uh, Chinese government is going to loosen its control on Twitter, is going to allow Twitter and other sites like Facebook to, uh, to be freely accessed by Chinese Internet users, that's a question that nobody really can answer. Young Ni, producer with the BBC's Chinese service, joining us from the BBC studios in London. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've collected a few Xinhua tweets from the Chinese news agency's most recent activity outside the Great Firewall. You can see those tweets in a Storyfy we've put together. Plus, you can add your thoughts. That's at theworld.org. News headlines are next. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Kids in Medellin, Colombia, don't have many choices. Either they go to the army and pick up a weapon, or they're taken by the combo and they have to pick up a weapon. So it's like you think our youth, the only option that they have is death. Still, some choose art over violence. That story ahead on the world. 
ERIs, the world is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Two British-based banks are going to pay record fines under settlements announced by the U.S. Justice Department. The two banks, HSBC and Standard Chartered, were charged under the U.S. Bank Secrecy Act and, more seriously, under the Trading with the Enemy Act. HSBC allegedly laundered money, perhaps billions of dollars, for drug cartels in Mexico, and both banks were charged with violating U.S. sanctions against nations like Iran. But there's a catch. The charges are never going to go to court because the banks have now settled out of court with the U.S. government. To help us understand what's going on here, we're joined by Jimmy Gurule, professor of law at Notre Dame. Gurule is a former assistant attorney general of the United States and at the Treasury was responsible for fighting money laundering. So uh, how does this work where a bank gets charged but won't go to court? What kind of deal is this? Well, it's in a way, it's a sweetheart deal because um, – while the bank is is assessed a a large fine, and there's no question here that the fine of one point nine billion dollars is unprecedented in its size, the reality is that despite the the admission of criminal wrongdoing, money laundering, violations of the Trading with the Enemy Act, no individual uh, is going to be held personally accountable for their crimes. And because it's a financial settlement, is it true that the banks don't have to admit wrongdoing? Well, the, the the bank will admit wrongdoing in, in what is referred to as a deferred prosecution agreement, and that's again the the, the justification for the large fine. They admitted there's an admission in the deferred prosecution agreement that the bank knowingly, willfully violated U.S. law, and there there's a huge disconnect here. The fact that the fine is is this large, 1.9 billion dollars underscores the severity of the criminal conduct that was committed here by employees of the bank. And so for for neither the bank to be criminally indicted or for corrupt bank officials that actually committed, that devised the criminal scheme and implemented the fraud scheme, sends the absolute wrong message. Uh, the message that's sent here is that if, you, uh, if you're going to engage in money laundering for Mexican drug cartels, make sure you're doing it within the scope of your employment working for a bank, because if you do, you won't be prosecuted. I mean, this isn't just turning a blind eye. It sounds like you're saying this is actively and knowingly in, engaging in a criminal act. Will, will any legal change? Iranian transactions, there's absolutely no question about that. I mean, it was clear from, from you know, first of all, HSBC was the subject of a, of a Senate subcommittee investigation. And that uh, Senate subcommittee produced a report. And that report indicated, I mean, there, there was overwhelming evidence that bank officials knowingly devised this fraud scheme uh, and actually taught... <laughs> Uh, Iranian bank officials how to implement this fraud scheme, how to remove the identifier information from Iranian transactions to avoid U.S. economic sanctions. Professor Gurule, if you were still at the Department of Justice, what would you have done? 
Well, I, I would have certainly uh, conducted a grand jury investigation. I would have subpoenaed on behalf of the grand jury all relevant documents, email exchanges, text messages of senior bank officials in, in order to build a case to show that individuals, that this fraud scheme was knowingly conducted by bank officials. And then I would be recommending in a very strong way uh, criminal prosecution of those bank officials. What, what do you think has changed since you were uh, at the Department of Justice? I mean, wh- why does it seem like the Department of Justice and, and Treasury are, are cutting deals instead of kind of pursuing uh, kind of more well, vigorous prosecution? Know, One of the arguments is, well, if the bank itself is indicted, it's going to lose its license to do business in the United States. It's going to serve as a death penalty, a death sentence for the bank. And uh, first, I'm not sure that that's the case. I'm not sure that that, uh, a settlement couldn't be arranged for maybe rather than revoking the bank's license entirely, perhaps some of the services that are provided by the bank are limited or reduced, or maybe, you know, the bank is not permitted to do business in the United States for a probationary period. So, so I'm not sure that I buy the argument that the bank is going to fail and, and the economic consequences of that are going to be far-reaching. And second, even if you accept that argument, it doesn't follow that, that bank officials themselves could not be held criminally responsible for their, their misconduct. Perhaps the argument might be, well, you know, these are complicated cases. They're very time-consuming. You know, they require a commitment of substantial investigative resources and attorneys, prosecutors to develop these cases. But so what? These are serious violations. Professor Jimmy Gurule, former Assistant Attorney General, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. By the way, according to today's settlement agreement, some of the money laundered through HSBC in Mexico allegedly came from a cartel in Colombia. It's a reminder that before Mexico was overrun by drug cartel violence, it was Colombia that was most associated with the illicit trade. In fact, back in the 1980s, Colombia's second largest city, Medellin, was considered the most violent in the world. The murder rate in Medellin has decreased since then, but violent crime is still a big issue there. And one way the city fights back is through art, specifically community programs that provide Medellin's at-risk youth with nonviolent alternatives to a life of crime. Shannon Young reports. The Moravia Center for Cultural Development sits in a neighborhood built in what used to be Medellin's waste dump. The center serves more than 1,000 local youth with courses in music, theater, and visual arts. Yesenendo is a staffer there. One of the center's strategies, says Endo, is to engage entire families from the neighborhood. Some members of those families might be involved in criminal activities. But Endo says the center avoids attracting trouble. We're neutral in the conflict, but that doesn't mean we allow it to perpetuate. We use education and culture as a means to create conditions of peace and tolerance. Everything we do is so that we can get along with each other. At the beginning of each cycle of coursework, we always hold a class on the culture of nonviolence, which is what we promote here. Promoting nonviolence may sound easy, but can be a delicate dance in a neighborhood where armed groups actively recruit young people. Our youth has two options and the third very blurred that we work really hard for. Lina Mejia is the co-director of Plato Edro, a multimedia training program for at-risk youth. 
That's the third choice she mentioned, giving kids an alternative that doesn't involve crime or guns. The other two options for young people in Medellin, she says, are grim. Either they go to the army and pick up a weapon, or they're taken by the combo and they have to pick up a weapon. So it's like you think our youth, the only option that they have is death. El Combo is a given area's dominant street gang, the entry-level position of organized crime. It controls neighborhood-level drug trafficking, runs extortion rackets, and uses violence to enforce territorial boundaries known as invisible borders. But just like gangs can lose new recruits to a multimedia training program, the hyper-territoriality of the gangs has found a pushback in cultural initiatives aimed at reclaiming public spaces for neighborhood residents. La Casa Morada is a shared studio space for musicians in La Comuna Trece, one of Medellin's most conflict-ridden neighborhoods. When Casa Morada opened to the public, it held a concert on its small front yard. The audience spilled onto the sidewalks, the streets, and up on the balconies of neighboring buildings. In a pause between sets, a rapper named Yeko spoke about a quarter century of keeping culture alive in Medellin, even through the darkest days of Pablo Escobar's reign. This is what it's about, filling these spaces with life. It's about giving hope to our kids who are hanging out watching what we're doing. A better world is possible, and we're the ones who need to build and rebuild this society. Singers can also serve as a community's oral historians. Many of the artists in Medellin's active hip-hop community use their lyrics to tell stories that rarely appear in Colombia's mainstream press. Don Vito is the frontman for Nicky Town, a ska band that's been around since the 1990s, and an MC with the Bella Vista Social Club. He says music in Medellin tends to be a social activity in which lyrics become a vehicle for preserving collective memory and narrating the daily reality lived in the barrios. While artists attain a level of notoriety and respect within their communities, they're not immune to the violence. Since 2009, nine rappers from the city's hip-hop movement for peace have been murdered. While the ongoing violence causes both pain and fear, silence isn't an option, according to Lina Mejia. War has been for so long here, and it's a war that's never been declared a war. So it's like an imaginary war, so we got to keep quiet about it. And in that silence, that lets violence continue. I think the only thing that would solve the situation, or at least it loosens the tension of the people, is being able to um, write, sing, do radio, and, you know, having cultural groups that gather them and give them power, feeling that they're together with somebody else and they're not alone, going crazy about their feelings or emotions. There are many levels of violence in Colombia. Right now, the national government is focused on peace talks with leftist rebels in an effort to end decades of armed conflict. But at the local level, in communities where options for teens are limited, and where violent crime and drug trafficking by remnants of former paramilitary groups are rampant, sometimes the best hope is offered by something as simple as a song. For The World, I'm Shannon Young.
conceptual art on the issue of Colombia's disappeared. Shannon sent us pictures from the Moravia Center in Medellin. That slideshow is at theworld.org. Next door to Colombia, the government of Venezuela today asked the nation to pray for President Hugo Chavez as he underwent new cancer surgery in Cuba. Chavez hasn't disclosed exactly what kind of cancer he's suffering from, but before leaving for Cuba, he seemed to acknowledge the seriousness of his illness. He spoke for the first time about the man he wants to lead Venezuela, should he not be able to any longer. That man is Venezuelan Vice President Nicolas Maduro. I asked the BBC Sarah Granger in Caracas to tell us about him. Well, Nicolas Maduro was a bus driver originally. He became a a union leader, and that's really how he became involved with the socialist movement. He's been foreign minister since 2006, and in a recent reshuffle, he was also given the dual role of vice president as well. So right now, in terms of the inner circle of Chavez's cabinet, he is by far and away the longest standing member of that cabinet. And of course, Hugo Chavez said himself over the weekend that he is his anointed successor. He's the one that he would like to see take over if indeed he does have to step aside. Right. And so what is Maduro's style? How does he differ from Chavez? Well, he's kind of a very quiet character. We don't really know too much about him. He doesn't talk too much, often sort of a fairly silent presence at the president's side. And that's in contrast to Hugo Chavez, who's very charismatic, who can talk at great length. You know, some of his speeches have gone on for six, seven, eight hours at a time. So a very different character in in that sense, but committed to the socialist cause, if you want to call it that. Also, he's seen as being accepted by Cuba, which is particularly important for Hugo Chavez, who is very close to Raul and Fidel Castro. And so in that sense, I think Hugo Chavez would see him as a successor who would carry on the policies and the Bolivarian revolution, as he likes to call it. Now, if Chavez quits or dies before January 10th, the date of his inauguration, then uh, it's the president of the National Assembly, apparently, who who would take over. His name is Diosdado Caballo. He's got a military background. What, What more can you tell us about him? Well, he's uh, another member of Chavez's inner circle. The two go back a long way. They were in the military together. And in 1992, they were both involved in plotting a coup, a failed coup, as it happened. So they have a long history. He has something of a checkered political career, but is very much one of Chavez's close friends, close colleagues, if you like. So President Chavez underwent surgery today in Havana. Describe the scene and mood in Caracas as President Chavez goes through these treatments. Well, the government called a mass, actually, to pray for the health of the president, to pray for a good outcome. Even on Sunday, in fact, just after the announcement was made that he would have to have more surgery, we had people gathering in squares up and down the country, gathering together to pray, some of them crying, very emotional for lots of people. Also, you know, lots of uh, defiance saying, you know, that the socialist revolution will continue. So a lot of strength of feeling from his close followers. But it has to be said, for those who don't support, him for opposition supporters. It is business as usual. Life is going on. People are going about their business. I think everyone realizes here that what happens will affect the country greatly. It'll affect politics. It'll affect economics. But um, not everybody as emotionally engaged as his close supporters are. The BBC's Sarah Granger in Caracas. Thank you very much. Thank you. A real brew, ha-ha, over a proposed beer tax. That's your first clue for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for a European country that wants to raise taxes on beer by 160%. Ouch. 
That actually translates to just six cents a glass for the average drinker. Still, this country's socialist leader says the tax will raise money for much-needed public services. Others hope that pricier beer will mean less binge drinking and better public health. Now, it's true the place we're looking for is probably better known as a nation of wine drinkers. Still, the average resident in our mystery location quaffs about 11 gallons of beer a year. So which nation are we talking about? The answer is just ahead. Bonus points if you also guess the name of this country's northern neighbor, a neighbor that has threatened to raise taxes on wine in retaliation. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Imagine your reaction if the tax on your beer went up, oh, say, 160 percent. It's only hypothetical people, but I imagine many of you would be outraged. For today's Geo Quiz, we were looking for the European country that's looking to do just that. Here to help us with the answer is the world's Clark Boyd, who tends to pay close attention to beer prices. Clark? Marco, the answer to today's geo-quiz is that wine-drinking nation, France. All right. So why, oh why, are they thinking about raising the taxes on beer so much? Well, this is part of President Francois Hollande's uh, big push, you know, tough economic times in Europe, tough economic times in, in France. And he sees raising taxes on beer as a way to generate millions and millions of dollars worth of revenue that can help pay for public services, while at the same time pitching it as... The kids will drink less, so it'll be good for public health. Right. So the winemakers are sitting pretty, but I imagine uh, French brewers and beer drinkers are a bit nervous right now, yeah? Well, the beer drinkers, the, 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 the people that I've seen quoted, the people I've talked to say, well, you know, it's, it's only going to be about six cents a glass, so we can, you know, here and there, we can, we can handle that. Um, as far as the brewers are concerned, of course, you've got big brewers in France, like Cronenborg. If you've ever been to France, I'm sure you've, you've had a Cronenborg. Indeed. They're going to be able to absorb this kind of cost increase and, and, and not really have to pass so much along to customers. But then, you know, what people don't know about, you know, you think France, you think wine. Well, Marco, there, there are actually quite a few little craft breweries. Uh, I was in Normandy a couple of summers ago, had great craft beer. And they're going to be very, very worried about this because uh, it's really going to cut into their margins quite significantly, that much of an increase that they have to pass along to customers. And, of course, this is going to affect brewers in Belgium, too, who want to get their beer into France, right? Yes, and we should note, Marco, that for bonus points today, we asked you, okay, so who's France's northern beer-brewing neighbor who's, who's going to be really upset about this? And, of course, the answer is Belgium. So if you got Belgium, you got bonus points. I just gave it away. <laughs> but, um, yes, Belgium and Belgian brewers are just outraged by, by this. You've got, you know, Belgium, huge brewing tradition. They've got 180 different breweries in this tiny little country making 450 different kinds of beer. They export about a third of that to France. So many bars you go into in France, there are two or three or four or five or dozens of Belgian beers that are available. So they're really worried about this. They, they say that it could really cut into their bottom line. Now, I suppose for French beer drinkers who see their beer per glass going up only six cents, that means a 160% rise in taxes. The original tax must have been pretty small. Actually, France had one of the lowest taxes on beer, uh, I think a fifth of what the UK, for example, charges for a pint. So it, it's not going up that much, but I think it's, it's just the general feeling here. And I think it's sort of like, you know, especially from Belgium's point of view, 
you've protected your own product, wine. You're not raising the taxes on that, which could generate untold revenue, I would imagine. But you're raising the taxes on a product that's near and dear to us. And so, you know, there's even been talk in Belgium of retaliating by raising the tax on French wine in Belgium to uh, as, as a sort of countermeasure here. And, uh, you know, I think both sides are looking to the European Union to, to, to even go so far as to make a ruling as to whether this is, this is fair to do or not. Well, when the euro economic crisis hits people in the beer glass or the wine glass, that's when they will storm the Bastille, I'm sure. How else are they going to drown their sorrows, Marco? The world's Clark Boyd. Thank you. You're welcome. Finally today, we're going to get an early start on our end-of-year lists. We asked our regular guest DJs to name their favorite musical releases of 2012. Today, we hear from three of our selectors, starting with Big Haas from Saudi Arabia. I nominate Syrian-American hip-hop artist Omar Ofendim for being an MC whose articulate lyrics and generous beats offend those who don't believe in freedom. The purpose of these verses is to unify the masses. Humps up to Hasek, and yes to Damascus. City streets to countrysides, mountaintops to coastal tides. Muslim, Christian, women, men and children, let's keep hope alive. Stand in solidarity with all your... Sustained by the poetry of the indisputable Nizar Qabani, his album Syriana Americana deserves much recognition and respect. Above all, hashtag Syria, a dynamite of a track, also ranked being lyrically aggressive as fighting for what is right and raising off immorality. Hi, I'm Manasseh Piri from Zambia. And my favorite album from Africa in 2012 comes from the young Zimbabwean Mbira player Hope Masike, who is also, for me, the greatest African musical discovery in Africa from 2012. On the first track from the album Bira, Love and Chocolate, Hope Masike effortlessly lifts the Mbira from ancient African tradition into modern-day Afro-jazz. The track is called Musha, The Home. First track from Bira, Love and Chocolate, my favorite album for 2012 from Hope Masike from Zimbabwe. I'm Tom Schnabel from KCRW in Santa Monica, California. One of my favorite albums from 2012 is called Amanke Diante. It's by German trumpet player Volker Goetze and Senegalese chora player Able Sissoko. The new CD sounds like a traditional African CD, but pairing a jazz trumpet player with a Senegalese chora player is anything but traditional. The CD was recorded in Paris in a 150-year-old wooden church, and the acoustic sound is gorgeous. Here we have an unlikely duo who have blessed us with an album of sublime and timeless beauty. (laughs) 
best of 2012 picks. We've got more later this week. These from guest reviewers Tom Schnabel in California, Manasa Piri in Zambia, and Big Haas in Saudi Arabia. Each of them gave us their top five picks of 2012, including the artists we just heard about. You can see those top five lists and links to the artists on them at theworld.org. Also, be sure to tweet your global hit selections of 2012. Just use the hashtag globalhit, and we'll gather all of the suggestions at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. And the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.